Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're going to start a pretty lengthy article that I've split up into multiple parts. It's continuing just some further reading on anarchism and trying to get some different perspectives on it, especially modern ones. Two specific notes with this reading. First of all, it is written from a first-person perspective, so you will hear me say I quite a lot. I do feel the need to make it explicit that I am not black, I am not a person of color at all. I am reading the text verbatim, it seems less powerful to try and edit it, but I think it's worth putting that disclaimer in there up front. The other note about how I'm reading this, on occasion, this reading makes reference to America, but spells it with three K's in place of the C, which is a piece of slang referencing the Ku Klux Klan and the white supremacy at the core of the United States of America. It is not an easy thing to pronounce that, especially when on occasion America is just spelled normally. But if you ever hear me make a clumsy extra syllable when pronouncing America, you can read it as me trying to pronounce three Ks. But let's get started on the first part. The rest of this reading will be coming next week. So here is the first half. Authoritarian leftists. Kill the cop in your head by Lorenzo Camboa Irvin. It's difficult to know where to begin with this open letter to the various European-American leftist groups within the United States, Marxist-Leninist and Marxist-Leninist-Maoist in particular. I have many issues with many groups, some general, some very specific. The way in which this is presented may seem scattered at first, but I encourage all of you to read and consider carefully what I have written in its entirety before you pass any judgments. It was Lenin who said, quote, Take from each national culture only its democratic and socialist elements. We take them only and absolutely in opposition to the bourgeois culture and bourgeois nationalism of each nation. End quote. It could be argued that Lenin's statement in the current American context is in fact a racialist position. Who is he, or the Bolsheviks themselves, to take anyone, or pass judgment on anyone, particularly since the privileges of having white skin are a predominant factor within the context of American-style oppression. This limited privilege in capitalist society is a prime factor in the creation and maintenance of bourgeois ideology in the minds of many whites of various classes in the US and elsewhere on the globe. When have legitimate struggles or movements for national and class liberation had to ask permission from some Eurocentric intellectual authority who may have seen starvation and brutality but has never experienced it himself? Where there is repression, there is resistance. Period. Self-defense is a basic human right that we as black people have exercised time and time again, both violent and non-violent a dialectical and historical reality that has kept many of us alive up to this point. Assuming that this was not Lenin's intent, and assuming that you all truly uphold worldwide socialism slash communism, then the question must be asked, why is it that each and every white-dominated, white-led vanguard in the United States has in fact done the exact opposite of what Lenin proclaims slash recommends when it comes to interacting with blacks and people of color. Have any of you sat down and seriously thought about why there are so few of us in your organizations, 
and at the same time, why non-white socialist-slash-communist formations, particularly in the black community, are so small and isolated. I have a few ideas. Section 1. A fundamentally incorrect analysis of the role of the white left in the last 30 years of civil rights to black liberation struggle. By most accounts, groups such as the Black Panther Party, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, American Indian Movement, and the Puerto Rican Independence Movement set the standard not only for communities of color, but also for revolutionary elements in the white community. All of the above groups were ruthlessly crushed. Their members imprisoned or killed, very few white left groups at the time fought back against the onslaught of COINTELPRO by supporting these groups, with the exception of the smaller armed underground cells. In fact, many groups, such as the Progressive Labour Party and the Revolutionary Union, now known as the Revolutionary Communist Party, USA, saw the repression of groups they admired, and at the same time despised, as an opportunity to assert their own version of vanguard leadership on our population. What they fail to recognize, and what many of you generally still fail to recognize, is that vanguard leadership is developed. It doesn't just magically happen through preachy dogmatic assertions, nor does it fall from the sky. Instead of working with the smaller autonomous formations to help facilitate the growth of black and white self-organization, the vanguard leadership of the black masses themselves and all others nurtured through grassroots social political alliances rooted in principle, they instead sought to either take them over or divide their memberships against each other until the group or groups were liquidated. These parasitic and paternalistic practices continue to this day. The only reason any kind of principled unity existed prior to large-scale repression is because black-led formations had no illusions about white radicals or their politics, and had no problems with kicking the living shit out of them if they started acting stupid. Notice also that the majority of white radicals who were down with real struggle and real organizations and were actually trusted and respected by our people are either still active or still in prison. Section 2. The white left's concept of the vanguard party. Such arrogance on the part of the white left is part and parcel to your vanguardist ideas and practice. Rather than seeking principled partnerships with non-white persons and groups, you instead seek converts to your party's particular brand of rigid political theology under the guise of unity. It makes sense that most of you speak of black-slash-white unity and sharp struggle against racism in such vague terms, and with such uncertainty in your voices, or with an over-exaggerated forcefulness that seems contrived. Another argument against vanguardist tendencies in individuals or amongst groups is the creation of sectarianism and organizational cultism between groups and within groups. Karl Marx himself fought tirelessly against sectarianism within the working class movement of 19th century Europe. He was also a staunch fighter against those who attempted to push his persona to an almost godlike status, declaring once in frustration, I assure you, sir, I am no Marxist. 
It could be argued from this viewpoint that the vanguardist white left in the US today is generally, by definition, rooted in the day-to-day practice of Marx himself. Anti-Marx. And by proxy, anti-revolutionary. Like your average small business, the various self-proclaimed vanguards compete against each other as well against the people themselves, both white and non-white, accusing each other of provocateurism, opportunism, and or possessing the incorrect line, when in fact most, if not all, are provocateurs, opportunists, and fundamentally incorrect. The nature of capitalist competition demands that such methods and tactics be utilized to the fullest in order to win in the business world. The white left has in fact adapted these methods and tactics to their own brand of organizing, actively reinventing and reinforcing the very social, political, and economic relations you claim to be against. Succeeding in undermining the very basic foundations of your overall theory, and all variants of that theory. Or is this phenomenon part and parcel to your theory? In volume 4 of the Collected Works of Lenin, Lenin himself states up front that socialism is state capitalism. Are you all just blindly following a dated foreign blueprint that is vastly out of context to begin with, with no real understanding of its workings? At the same time, It could be observed that you folks are merely products of your environment, reflective of the alienated and hostile communities and families from which many of you emerge. American society has taught you the tenets of survival of the fittest and rugged individualism, and you swallowed those doctrines like your mother's milk. Because the white left refuses to combat and reject reactionary tendencies in their, your, own heads, and amongst themselves, yourselves, and because they, you, refuse to see how white culture is rooted firmly in capitalism and imperialism, refusing to reject it beyond superficial culture appropriations, i.e. Native American dream catchers hanging from the rearview mirrors of your vehicles, wearing Adidas or Nikes with fat laces and oversized Levi's jeans, or Dickies slacks worn L.A. sag style. Crude attempts to fit in by exaggerated, insulting overuse of the latest slang terms from the hood, etc. You in fact reinvent racist and authoritarian social relations as the final product of your so-called revolutionary theory what I call left-wing white supremacy. This tragic dilemma is compounded by, and finds some of its initial roots in, your generally ahistorical and wishful analysis of black and white relations in the US, and rigid, dogmatic definitions of scientific socialism, or revolutionary communism, based in a Eurocentric context. Thus, we are expected to embrace these socialist values of the settler-slash-conqueror culture rather than the traditional American values of your reactionary opponents, as if we do not possess our own socialist values, rooted in our own daily and cultural realities. Wasn't the Black Panther Party socialist? What about the Underground Railroad? 
our ancestors, and yes, even some of yours, were practicing mutual aid back when most European revolutionary theorists were still talking about it like it was a lofty, faraway ideal. One example of this precariously mentioned wishful thinking in place of a true analysis on the historical and current political climate particular to this country is an article by Joseph Green entitled Anarchism and the Marketplace, which appeared in the newsletter Communist Voice, Volume 1, Issue 4, September 15, 1995. In it, he asserts that anarchism is nothing more than small-scale operations run by individuals that will inevitably lead to the reintroduction of economic exploitation. He also claims that, quote, it fails because its failure to understand the relation of freedom to mass activity mirrors the capitalist ideology of each person for their self, end quote. He then offers up a vague plan of action, that the workers must rely on class organization and all-round mass struggle. In addition, he argues for the centralization of all means of production. Clearly, Green's political ideology is in fact a theology. First, anarchism was practiced in mass scale most recently in Spain from 1936 to 1939. By most accounts, including Marxist-Leninist, the Spanish working class organizations such as the CNT, National Confederation of Labor, and the FAI, Federation of Anarchists of Iberia, seized the true direct workers' power and in fact kept people alive during a massive civil war. Their main failure was on a military and partially on an ideological level. 1. They didn't carry out a protracted fight against the fascist phalange with the attitude of driving them off the face of the planet. 2. They underestimated the treachery of their Marxist-Leninist allies, and even some of their anarchist allies, who later sided with the liberal government to destroy the anarchist collectives. Some CNT members even joined the government in the name of a united front against fascism. And 3. They hadn't spent enough time really developing their networks outside the country, in the event they needed weapons, supplies, or a place to seek refuge quickly. Besides leaving out those important facts, Green also omits that today the majority of prisoner support groups in the US are anarchist-run or influenced. He also leaves out that anarchists are generally the most supportive and involved in grassroots issues, such as homelessness, police brutality, clan-slash-Nazi activity, native sovereignty issues, physical defense of women's health clinics, sexual assault prevention, animal rights, environmentalism, and free speech issues. Green later attacks supporters of capitalist realism on one hand and anarchist dreamers on the other. What he fails to understand is that the movement will be influenced mostly by those who do practical work around day-to-day -day struggles, not by those who spout empty rhetoric with no basis in reality because they themselves, like Green, are fundamentally incapable of practicing what they preach. Any theory which cannot, at the very least, be demonstrated in miniature scale, with the current reality of the economically, socially, and militarily imposed limitations of capitalist white supremacist society taken into consideration, in daily life is not even worth serious discussion because it is rigid dogma of the worst kind. Even if he could show and prove 
his proposed system is doomed to repeat the cannibalistic practices of Joseph Stalin or Pol Pot. While state planning can accelerate economic growth, no one from Lenin to Mao to Green himself has truly dealt with the power relationship between the working class and the middle class revolutionaries who seize state power on the behalf of the latter. How can one using the organizing methods of the European bourgeoisie, hierarchical party building, and seizing state power, and not expect this method of organizing people to not take on the reactionary characteristics of what it supposedly seeks to eliminate? Then there's the question of asserting one's authoritarian will upon others. The usual recruitment tactics of the white left attempting to attract black members. At one point in the article, Green claims that anarchist social relations take on the oppressive characteristics of the capitalist ideology they're rooted in. Really? What about the capitalist characteristics of know-it-all ahistorical white radicals, who can just as effectively assert capitalistic oppressive social relations when utilizing a top-down party structure? Especially when it's utilized against minority populations. What about the reassertion of patriarchy, or actual physical and mental abuse, in interpersonal relationships, especially when an organizational structure allows for, and in fact rewards, oppressive social relationships? What is the qualitative difference between a party bureaucrat who uses his position to steal from the people, in addition to living a neo-bourgeois lifestyle, privilege derived from one's official position and justified by other party members who do the same, and, potentially, derived from the color of his skin in the American context, and a collective member who steals from the local community. One major difference is that the bureaucrat can only be removed by the party. The people, once again, have no real voice in the matter, unless the people themselves take up arms and dislodge the bureaucrat and his party. The collective member can receive a swift punishment rooted in the true working class traditions, culture, and values of the working class themselves, rather than that which is interpreted for them by so-called professional revolutionaries, with no real ties to that particular community. This is a very important, yet very basic, concept for the white left to consider when working with non-white workers, who, by the way, are the true vanguard in the US, black workers in particular. Check your history, especially the last 30 years of it, i.e. direct community control. This demand has become more central over the last 30 years, as we have seen the creation of a black elite of liberal and conservative puppets for the white power structure to speak through to the people. The few who were allowed to succeed because they took up the ideology of the oppressor. But they too have become increasingly powerless as the shift to the right in the various branches of the state and federal government has quickly and easily checked what little political power they had. Also, we do not have direct control over neighborhood institutions as capitalists, let alone as workers. At least white workers have a means of production they could potentially seize. Small, mom-and-pop restaurants and stores, or federally funded health clinics and social services in the hood hardly count as black capitalist enterprises, nor are any of these things particularly liberating in and of themselves. But white radicals, the white left of the US in particular, 
have a hard time dealing with the reality that black people have always managed to survive, despite the worst or best intentions of the majority population. We will continue to survive without you, and can make our revolution without you, or against you, if necessary. Don't tell us about protracted struggle. The daily lives of non-white workers are testimony to the true meaning of protracted struggle, both in the US and globally. Your inability or unwillingness to accept the fact that our struggle is parallel to yours, but at the same time very specific, and will be finished successfully when we as a people, as working class blacks on the North American continent, decide that we have achieved full freedom, as defined by our history, our culture, our needs, our desires, our personal experiences, and our political ideas, is by far the primary reason why the white left is so weak in this country. In addition, this sinking garbage scow of American leftism is dragging other liberating political vessels down with it, particularly the smaller anti-authoritarian factions within the white settler nation itself, and the few non-dogmatic and non-ritualistic individuals within today's Marxist-Leninist parties who sincerely wish to get away from the old, tired, historical revisionism of their particular revolutionary party. This seemingly fixed position, along with many other fixed positions in their thought, helped to reveal the white left's profound isolation and alienation from the black community as a whole and its activists. Yet many of them would continue to wholeheartedly, and foolishly, assert that they are part of the community simply because they live in a black neighborhood where their party headquarters is located there. The white left's isolation and alienation was revealed even more profoundly in the criticisms of the Million Man March on Washington. In the end, the majority of the white leftist critics wound up tailing the most backward elements of the Republican Party some going as far as to echo the very same words of Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole, who commented on the day after the march that you can't separate the message from the messenger. Others parroted the words of House Majority Leader Newt Gingrich, who had the nerve to ask, where did our leadership go wrong? Since when were we expected to follow the leadership of white America? The right left or center, without some type of brutal coercion? Where is the advantage for us in following any of them anywhere? What have any of them done for us lately? Where is the better leadership example of any of the hierarchical political tendencies of any class or ideology in the US, and who do they benefit exclusively and explicitly? None of you were particularly interested in us before we rebelled violently in 1992. Why the sudden interest? What do you want from us this time? Few, if any, of the major pro-revolution left-wing newspapers in the US gave an accurate account of the march. Many of them claimed that only the black petit bourgeois were in attendance. All of them claimed that women were forbidden to be there despite the widely reported fact that our sisters were there in large numbers. MIM notes, and the Maoist internationalist movement itself, to their credit, recognize that white workers are not the vanguard class. Yet, because they themselves are so profoundly alienated from the black community on this side of the prison walls, they had to rely on information from mainstream press accounts, courtesy of the Washington Post. And rightfully alienated they are, 
who in their right mind actually believes that a small secret cult of white campus radicals can or should lead the masses of non-white people to their or our freedom whatever those people are smoking i don't want any i do have to say however that MIM is indeed the least dogma addicted of the entire white left milieu that I've encountered, but dogma addicted nonetheless. I helped organize in the Seattle area for the Million Man March. The strong black women I met had every intention of going. None of the men even considered stopping them, let alone suggested that they not go. Sure, the NOI passed on Minister Farrakhan's message that it was a men-only march, but it was barely discussed and generally ignored. The Million Man March Local Organizing Committees, LOCs, gave the various black left factions a forum to present ideas and concepts to entire sections of our population who are not familiar with Marxism, Anarchism, Kwame Nkrumah, George Jackson, the Ten Point Program, Class Struggle, etc. It also afforded us the opportunity to begin engaging some of the members of the local NOI chapter in class-based ideological struggle, along with participating community people. Of course, it was impossible for the white left to know any of this, more proof of their profound isolation and alienation. At the time, despite our own minor ideological differences, we agreed on one point. It was none of your business or the business of the rest of the white population. When we organize amongst our own, we consider it a family matter. When we have conflicts, that is also a family matter. Again, it is none of your business unless we tell you differently. How would you like it if we butted in on a heated family argument you are having with a loved one and started telling you what to think and what to do? This brings me to two issues that have bothered me since January 1996. Both comments were made to me by a member of Radical Women at the International Socialist Organizations Conference at the University of Washington. The first statement was, I don't recognize black people as a nation like I do native people. My first thought was, who the fuck are you to pass judgment upon a general self-definition that is rooted in our collective suffering throughout the history of this country. She might as well join up with the right-wing Holocaust revisionists, for this is precisely what she is practicing, the denial of the Black Holocaust from 1555 to the present, along a parallel denial by proxy of the genocide against other non-white nations within the US. Our nationalism emerged as a defense against your white racism. The difference between revolutionary black nationalists like Huey P. Newton and the Black Panther Party, and cultural nationalists, like Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam, is that we see our nationalism as a specific tool to defend ourselves from groups and individuals like this ignorant person, not as an exclusive or single means for liberation. We recognize that we will have to attack bourgeois elements among our people just as vigorously as we fight against white supremacists. Left center or right. The difference is that our bourgeoisie is only powerful within the community. They have no power against the white power structure without us, nor do they have power generally without the blessing of the white power structure itself. Our task then is to unite them with us against a common enemy, while at the same time explicitly undermining and eventually eliminating 
their inherently reactionary influence. The second stupidity to pass her lips concerned our support of black-owned businesses. I pointed out to her that if she had in fact studied her Marxism-Leninism, she would see that their existence goes hand in glove with Marx's theory that revolution could only ensue once capitalism was fully developed. She came back with the criticism, well, you'll be waiting a long time for that to happen. Once again, had she actually studied Marxism-Leninism, she would know that Lenin and the Bolsheviks also had to deal with this same question. Russia's economy was predominantly agricultural, and its bourgeois class was small. They decided to go with the mood and sentiments of the peasantry and industrial workers at that particular moment in history. Seize the means of production and distribution anyway. Who says we wouldn't do the same? The participants of the LA Rebellion, and others, despite their lack of training in radical left-wing political theory, besides being predominantly black, Latino, or poor white trash in America, got it half right. They seized the means of distribution, distributed the products of their collective labor, and then burned the facilities to the ground. Yes, there were many problems with the events of 1992, but they did show our potential for future progress. Black autonomists ultimately reject vanguardism because as the white left, as well as elements of the black revolutionary movement, has demonstrated, it erodes and eventually destroys the fragile ties that hold together the necessary principled partnerships between groups and individuals that are needed to accomplish the numerous tasks associated with fighting back successfully and building a strong, diverse, and viable revolutionary movement. The majority of the white left is largely disliked, disrespected, and not trusted by our people because they fail miserably on this point. How can you claim to be a socialist when you are, in fact, anti-social? How do you all distinguish yourselves from the majority of your people in concrete, practical, and principled terms? And that concludes the first part of this reading. I'll have some thoughts on this at the end of next episode, but I want to wait till the full reading is out there. I do also want to mention, there's some further reading listed at the end of the article. I will put those in the show notes if you'd like to read any of those things to get more information. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com for all sorts of other leftist podcasts about media, books, video games, movies, anime. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.